Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Dr. Bridget Scott and today I am pleased to be bringing you a roundtable discussion on the role of patient empowerment as a key component of effective multidisciplinary cancer care. This podcast has been sponsored by AstraZeneca. Joining me for today's podcast are three experts in the field, Professor David Baldwin, Clinical Nurse Specialist Michelle Greenwood, and Cancer Specialist Physiotherapist Kerry Archer, who are going to offer their perspectives on the multidisciplinary team patient dynamic and the importance of patient empowerment in multidisciplinary cancer care. David Baldwin works as a consultant respiratory physician subspecializing in lung cancer and mesothelioma and interventional procedures. He is honorary professor in the School of Medicine at the University of Nottingham. He is chair of the UK Clinical Expert Group for Lung Cancer. His primary research interests are in CT screening and lung cancer epidemiology. He is leading the novel recruitment work package in the Four in the Lung Run project. He was lead respiratory physician on the UK CT lung cancer screening trial, UKLS. Professor Baldwin has published over 240 papers, including three influential guidelines. He has held the positions of Honorary Secretary of the British Thoracic Society, Clinical Lead on the NICE Lung Cancer Guideline Development Group, Chair of the Quality Standards Group on Lung Cancer, Clinical Director of the East Midlands Cancer Alliance, and Chair of the Screening Prevention and Early Diagnosis Group for the National Cancer Research Institute. Michelle Greenwood is a clinical nurse specialist in neuro-oncology and lead teenage and young adults nurse at Barts Health NHS Trust. Michelle worked on an oncology ward at Barts for several years, then in the community as a district nurse, before returning to Barts to undertake research nursing in urological cancers, including renal and prostate studies. She then became an ocular melanoma clinical nurse specialist in 2014, before taking up her current post in 2015. Michelle has a particular interest in renal, testicular, bladder and prostate cancers, health promotion, cancer survivorship, service development and teenage and young adults with cancer. Kerry Archer is the Cancer Specialist Physiotherapist at Active Against Cancer, Harrogate and District NHS Foundation Trust. She studied her BSc in sports therapy before qualifying as a chartered physiotherapist in 2007. Kerry specialised in respiratory medicine during the early part of her career, and this led to her interest in oncology. Taking up an oncology specialist post at Castle Hill Hospital in Hull, Kerry led the physiotherapy team within the inpatient oncology unit for five years. In June 2019, she took up the post of cancer specialist physiotherapist with a newly established unique oncology exercise referral service, Active Against Cancer. She has been an integral part of the service setup delivering exercise to individuals diagnosed with cancer, supporting them from diagnosis through their treatment and beyond. The service was highly commended at the NHS Parliamentary Awards in 2021. Her current clinical interest involves the development of exercise guidelines for those with a stoma, and she's working both locally and nationally with colleagues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of AstraZeneca or EMJ. And now I will hand over to Professor Baldwin for the roundtable discussion. Well, thank you very much, Bridget. It's uh, great to have um, a group of people on the line that um, are, com- are coming from different aspects of, uh, 
uh, what we think about MDTs and MDTs from people like myself, a, a clinician is very much about discussing the details of patient management in the meetings and then working with colleagues with different professional skills. But this particular podcast is, is more about how that uh, interacts with patients, which is often uh, left behind and has been the focus of a number of different publications recently. So the first thing I'd like to ask um, really from opinions of, of, uh, of both um, Michelle and, and Kerry, so a physiotherapist Kerry and a, and a nurse Michelle from different tumour sites that I tend to look after, I'm a lung cancer specialist, is um, MDT uh, approach is considered the gold standard for diagnosis and treatment of cancer now, particularly in the UK, although that's not the same in many countries. How aware do you think patients are of their MDT, the MDT meeting, uh, and how do you think awareness might be improved? So maybe, maybe she'll, would Kerry go first, please? That'd be okay. Yep, yep, of course. I think in terms of the awareness of patients, I think um, they, they maybe don't know that it's it's an MDT. I think they understand that um, we have professionals that, that will discuss um, following uh, the diagnosis. I think one of the biggest challenges is, is that it's, it's a really difficult time for, for our patients with their diagnosis and they meet a lot of professionals very quickly. And I think there's a lot of changeable titles. I don't think we're always necessarily consistent in, in what we call ourselves. Um, and I think, you know, sort of in terms of where where they actually meet us as well. So I think I think patients do have an awareness that there are multiple medical professionals that are involved in their care. Um, but I think in terms of how we how we improve that awareness is about making sure that um, our, our when we when we meet patients that that they're aware of, of who the right person is at the right time so that we're trying not to overwhelm them with too many um, names and, and titles and that actually um, when they when they come to, to meet that person in particular that that's the time at which um, you would extend in terms of, of description and, and where they actually fit into their treatment pathway. Yeah, thanks so much. You're actually you're broaching on the next question, which is how we improve uh, communication as well. Thanks for that. Um, um, Michelle, any other thoughts on, on how aware people may, might be of the MDT in terms of the number of different professionals, but also the meeting that uh, often goes uh, where, on where we make important decisions on their behalf, really? Well, I agree with Kerry. I think that there's a lot of information for patients to take in when you first meet them. I think that it's very difficult for them to remember even sometimes who their specialist nurse is. Um, you know, you quite often will get patients say, oh, I haven't met a nurse, but they, ha they have. Um, but there's just so much information to take on board and so many things going on, so many appointments, medications, etc. I think it's really difficult for them. So I think, uh, you know, like Kerry said, you get that kind of a bit of information at a time and, you know, giving them the, the, the things that they need at that time. I think people are probably more aware of it being um, MDT in terms of um, lots of different healthcare professionals being involved, maybe when they're in on the ward, because you get to see physios and things um, and OT and people like that then. But in clinic settings, I think probably they're less aware of all those other people that might be involved in, in care. Um, I think that, uh, and in terms of the MDT meeting, I think people are very much less aware of that and you have to kind of explain to them that you know this will be put to the multidisciplinary team meeting where your case will be discussed the images will be reviewed who will be there um, so i think that patients have quite um limited understanding of the mdt meeting as such mm. well it's interesting some of the conversations i have with patients are more about apologies for being a bit late uh into the clinic because the 
the meeting's gone on a bit too long and you know that that's the first time they ever hear about the meeting but i think your i, I your, what you said is it rings a bell with me very much so i think the other thing probably is relevant is the fact that this this will be different for different patients demographic in terms of uh, what type of tumor they've got um whether you know that the, there's a really bad news or or relatively good news i'll be more interested in in the in the details uh, so it does vary patient to patient. We have to be adaptable, don't we? I think. So, so any, any can we move on to the the next um, comment really, which is about we know that from various documents that good communication between the MDT and the other members is emphasised as being a very very important part of MDT communication. But what about communication with with the patients? Because that is not usually emphasized in most of the documents that I've read in terms of uh, guidelines. How do you think we can improve? I mean, obviously Kerry's already touched on it, but how, how do you think we can improve the communication? Do you want, do you want to go first, Michelle? I think it's um, difficult because as, as you said, you know, each patient's different and some will have varying degrees of understanding to, of what the MDT is and what its role plays in, in their care. Um, so I suppose it's about explaining to them you know, why you as the doctor have to kind of take this to the MDT and discuss that that case and what that brings to the case and what that brings to their care, et cetera, whether they need input from other people such as surgeons, et cetera, and how that all works together and how hopefully makes it a bit smoother. Obviously, the role of the specialist nurse at MDT is to represent the, the views of the patient. So it's obviously much easier if you've already met the patient and know what they want and understand them and how they kind of see their care going and and what they what they want to um, and that's obviously your role there is to to advocate for them but I think it's difficult um, I think it's difficult to put across to somebody sitting in front of you in the clinic what goes on at MDT and how it impacts them really so it's, it's just about being open and honest and having a sort of detailed discussion with them about what it brings to their care. Mm. Kerry any any comments about that? Yeah, no, and, and again, absolutely agree, Michelle. And I think making sure that um, the, the patients are really clear about what people's roles are. I think, you know, as we've, we've already said, there's so many different people that they will um, potentially meet or hear about in quite a short space of time. Um, and I think one of the challenges that patients face is, is knowing who to go to um, about what. And again, I think we're, we're much better in that in terms of usually having, and, and it does tend to be the, the cancer nurse specialist as, as kind of the coordinator and, and the first point of contact. And I think as long as we're clear with the patients in terms of where they need to go if they have a question, um, for, for that person to then be able to understand what everybody else's role is and, and who would be the best person to answer that, then I think that goes a long way to helping the patients understand um, how, how the MDT works. Mm. Well, I think the central role of the cancer nurse specialist is gladly now accepted by most people, although it's, I have to say, in the lung cancer, well, it's been, in a bit, been a real struggle to get you know, adequate number of nurses supported because people weren't convinced of their worth, which which are actually they're actually like gold, really. Um, but the the one thing I would say is that sometimes when that when there is something going on, like for example in lung cancers, uh, prehabilitation is something we're trying to do quite a lot of now. That that does provide an opportunity to emphasise the role of the MDT and the MDT members. So it's a way of link, linking in what's going on with the patient with with knowledge about the MDT. Uh, I don't think we're particularly brilliant at it, but I think it's something we could we should work on. Uh, just with with that in mind. Um, what what sort of information um, 
is provided by the MDT to patients and 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 how do you think that's best best presented do you want to go first Kerry yeah so I think you know given again it's that challenge isn't it because we know that we give patients lots of information and I think we're still working to figure out what what the best um, way in which to present that information is um, I, I would still agree that um, written information is good as long as there's not too much of it and that actually it's very um, succinct in its in its points um, because of, sometimes then the the vital information can get lost in in all the other words um, so I think being able to provide some written information for patients to be able to take away um, in addition to um, actually talking them through and really highlighting those specific points that are important to them um, but again sort of just giving the information that they need at that particular point um, and ensuring that that information is is, is consistent um, across the MDT as well I think is really important because conflicting information is the last thing that a patient needs when they're they're getting the amount of information that they are um, so you know things like we we give our patients sort of written information and we have access to to a website um and and patient information leaflets i think still have um have have a lot of worth in them as well mm, all great points i mean it, it is difficult to, to know the balance between overload patient information overload and and the requirements the essential requirements isn't it um what, what do you think about that michelle your perspective I think yeah no I agree but I, I do I do think there is a danger of the MDT meeting um, especially being quite far removed from the patient it's very easy to make decisions about people you've never met before I suppose isn't it and about their care um, and, and make decisions about where their life's going in terms of treatment and things like that so I think obviously your main Point of relaying information is still always going to be your treating clinician and your CNS. I don't know how, I mean, you know, obviously improving communication between the MDT meeting and the patient in the clinic is difficult other than those people who are directly involved in their care. And so, um, you know, again, just coming back to kind of that, that's why you're the advocate for the patient because they aren't able to be there. They aren't able to put across their kind of like wishes and points of views. Um, and I think that sometimes it can probably seem quite far removed from from the patient and the actual care. And I think that that's just something that we as clinicians have to be quite aware of. That's that's really good point. It's also neatly brought us on to the next couple of, uh, of uh, topics. And this is now about the decision making process by the MDT, as I said before, on behalf of the patient. Uh, but I do have some strong feelings about how that should be to be managed. Um, so first of all, you, you know, uh, papers have, set, have suggested that the process of MDT decision making presents a significant barrier to effective patient involvement and certainly having patients at the MDT meeting has been suggested, which I don't, don't think would work at all, actually, it'd be very, very difficult indeed. So, so with that in mind, um, this barrier, potential barrier, how do you think MDTs can ensure that patients are engaged in the decision making. I think we'll stick with you, Michelle, as you'd already begun that question. Yeah, so I mean, we have had a couple of patients who have been quite cross that they're not allowed to come to the MDT to represent themselves, um, you know, as if it's like a, a court of law and they need to get their, their case heard. Um, so I think it's just about how you reassure the patient that you are taking their 
views and you know their wishes to that meeting and representing them fairly and they have to trust you to to do that um and on the whole most people do i would suggest but there are a few people who obviously don't feel that maybe you're going to put their view across the same way that they would put their view across and and it's about how you sort of talk to them about that so communication again key um you know making them feel that actually they do have a voice at that meeting even though they're not physically able to be there um, and that they are actually, you know, kind of in control of their care to, to some extent as well. Um, I think, yeah, and I agree. I don't think having patients at the MDT meeting will work at all. I think it would probably be quite difficult um, to get through a meeting, especially when you've got large MDTs like we have in neurology and uh, urology oncology, um, you know, where you've got probably 70 patients or something on the on the list as a minimum. So I think it's it's difficult, but it's about how you communicate to the patient, how you're representing them. Yeah. How, how about you? How, how is it from your perspective, Kerry? Yeah. And, and again, you know, although um, as a physiotherapist, we don't sit directly on um, sort of the, the core MDT meetings, um, we have lots of opportunities to um, to, to feed in. Um, and I suppose we also have a lot of, rep, you know, in, in some circumstances, have more regular um, contacts with the patients than potentially the, the oncologists and the surgeons and, and the, the cancer specialists do. Um, one thing kind of we, we tend to do as physios is goal setting. And we tend to talk to patients a lot about what what they want to achieve what they enjoy and, and I particularly work in an exercise service so um, I spend a lot of time finding out what patients are, are interested in and, and what sort of motivates them um, and I think that that's that's a really useful way of of getting a, a I suppose a slightly different perspective um, on the patients and if there is anything in particular again um, you know a lot of patients when they they get a cancer diagnosis assume that they can never go back to what they were doing before particularly if it was um, sort of more high level and I think it's about um, having those conversations and and setting those those um, goals and and talking to them and, and helping to manage their expectations as well um, and then be you know reassuring the patient that although as, as a, a physio that doesn't necessarily sit in that that meeting directly I do have those um, those professional relationships with those that that do um, make the decisions ultimately um, and that actually that, that their voice is being being heard um, and that that information is is being relayed. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. The um, in terms of empowering the patients, uh, the the the, con the concept that that if they know that their views are being uh, listened to and represented, uh, they'll feel feel more empowered to to you know to to take charge of their of the 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 whole process, but. I'd like to sort of bring in the concept of shared decision making here, you know, because um, as you you mentioned, there are some patients that that, that won't. Um, I think prior to the podcast, actually, that won't want actually want any decision to be made themselves at all. They want the professionals. They'll expect the professionals to make the decision. And um, how do we go about that? That maybe I'll switch to to Michelle to try and tackle that concept of of the the variation that we see. We all know the massive variation in the patient's willingness to want to make a decision themselves and also be any part of the MDT um, in terms of the decision-making process. You know, you, are, you'll get, you'll get, you range from the person who wants to view it as a court of law, as you just mentioned, to the person who actually really just wants to be told what's going to happen. Uh, and how do you, how do you, how do you go ar get around that, Michelle? I think it's difficult and obviously that's why you're always working in the best interests of the patient aren't you so um <clears throat> i suppose 
uh, that is probably if you've got a patient who doesn't really want to be involved and you say, you know, you tell me what to do, doctor, and I'll just do it, <clears throat> um, which we see quite a bit still, actually, you know, especially in the older population. It's like you're the doctor. You, you tell me. So don't don't give me a choice. Uh, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And uh, I think, you know, they they are putting their trust in you. So probably the MDT then as a clinician helps you to feel that what you are doing is the correct thing because obviously you're you're working in their best interest and you're doing what you think is the correct thing to do but I suppose the MDT is your reinforcement of that isn't it and you're, you're just kind of running that past them to make sure that what you're doing is is okay and that does sound all right and you know that we're, we're not doing anything that's going to you know cause any harm or distress or anything like that um, but yeah you do you do have to go on a sort of case by case basis and some people would just you know don't want to have any decision making and other people want to be in complete control of what happens and when and in your experiences uh, in the euro oncology mdt which is different from lung cancer mdt who is it if anyone that actually represents the patient's um view um it, uh, is it any every everyone or is it but no one or what um i think there's a little it's a little bit of everyone. I mean, if the CNSs know the patient, then they will they will definitely kind of pipe up about what what um, the patient wants or you know what the patient kind of uh, expects. Um, you know, you might get it's just the surgeon who's met the patient, and so the pa the surgeon is representing the, the patient's views. So I think there, it, it is everybody to to some extent. Yeah, I think we, yeah. we find the same is that it's a it's a truly balanced uh, approach from the MDT that, that lots of, I mean, obviously the nurses are the patient advocate all the way through the pathway, but in terms of flagging up things that the patient might prefer and other aspects of the patient's uh, details that may influence our decision, uh, everybody seems to chip, chip in quite well. So I'm quite pleased with that. I don't think it works with every MDT, but certainly in our lung MDT, it's, it's pretty good. Um, and so in, in terms of the, um, the shared decision process. Um, uh, you, you're familiar with this when, when you when you when you do have a patient who has has a a, um, a decision to make, then the idea is first of all to make sure that they fully understand. That's that's a di really difficult thing. What the decision is and where, where they need to, why they need to make a decision, and that we will help with that. And 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 then they should be should then have a cooling off period when they reflect on that, which is up to a week. And then then they should have. Uh, a, a rediscussion and a re-establishment of the facts, and then finally, um, they come to a decision with the clinicians about what the best way forward is for that individual. Now, of course, in the cancer service, if you did that, particularly with lung cancer, quite rapidly progressive cancer, you'd probably run out of time, and it would actually harm the patient. So we tend to accelerate this. What, what, to, to what extent, um, Kerry, have you you um, come across any? shared decision-making process um, in, in your practice? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we, so we we, t we get involved with, with patients, or particularly in the role that I do, because I work in prehab and rehab. So we, we do get involved um, in to an extent, um, and certainly in terms of supporting the patients going forward with, with that sort of shared decision-making. Um, 
and and one of the things that that we often get involved with is sort of with a colorectal patient so um, if they're offered surgery the surgeons will um, will speak to us and speak to the patients about um, actually in terms of when we're looking at best outcomes so they want to offer them something and if the patient wants to take the surgery um, and then actually we get involved with with that side of things in that the patient will then come and discuss what we have to offer from a prehab point of view for them and actually how we can prepare them so and that and that really helps patients in terms of um, their decision making um, and and looking at, at what they can do for themselves at that particular point so I, I you know we we do also see lung patients and I, I completely understand where you're coming from David with that some of those pathways are really rapid um, but there's that op there's a real opportunity with with patients there where there isn't so um, that the time isn't isn't so limited that actually we can give patients an opportunity to do something um, for, for the benefit of themselves um, and by by offering them some prehabilitation to prepare themselves for surgery that will actually directly influence their their outcome um, that that again is another way of really empowering those patients but also helping them to make that decision but giving them opportunities to support in their decision so rather than I don't want to have surgery because I don't think I'll do very well it's well actually if you tried this and, and had some exercise and, and we got you prepared to, to then look at you having a better outcome would that then be a, a decision that you would look at so that that's sort of the way in which I, I would I would sort of approach the the shared element of it. And I'm sure that's really very important that every part of the MD all members of the MDT are aware of this process that's going on with patients. Turning to nurses Michelle there, there have been a couple of surveys that suggested that that nurses are possibly the key person to, and I, I agree with this actually, but put the key person to convey messages and decision-making to the patient from the MDT. In other words, this decision has been made. What do you think and all the rest of it and explore it with them and encourage that process. Do you feel that that's working? Do you think there are barriers there for that to happen from the nurse's perspective? And do you think it might've uh, changed, you know, since the publications came out that suggested the nurses were the key to, to trying to get this process working? I, th I think that nurses are the key um, to, to relaying that information. They probably have a bit more time than some of the doctors to sit and discuss those decisions um, and talk them through and explain them to the patients um, so that they kind of understand it and, you know, put their points of view across and sort of almost debate it sometimes. Um, it's kind of like how it goes. But I think, yeah, there, there probably are barriers. Um, I think obviously um, it's very difficult to get clinical nurse specialists, uh, you know, and retain, re um, recruit, retain and train these people. So, you know, I think, um, as you said, sort of mentioned before, we've had lots of sort of CNS reviews and CNSs feel massively undervalued, um, you know, because it's kind of like, well, what are you doing all day? Because a lot of the work that you're doing isn't able to kind of be coded. Um, like palliative care referrals and things like that They're, it's all kind of soft stuff that things that you know don't count as maybe a clinic appointment that ch gets charged by the trust to you know clinical commissioning groups so I think CNS is probably feeling a bit battered actually um, you know they're, they're they're not really valued they're not really um, it's a kind of like where do you go after your CNS so the routes to progression are quite limited um, so I think yeah, that there were lots of issues like that and, and the people that are coming into CNS posts maybe don't have as much experience as much training um, getting time off just to do education is really difficult once you're in these roles because everybody's really short staffed and short of time um, so I think that probably some of the barriers will include you know lack of 
knowledge and and kind of like confidence in talking to the patients about these things the same way that maybe they don't feel confident enough always to speak up at MDT because it's a bit intimidating being there with you know all these surgeons and um, oncologists etc so it's probably quite scary if you're quite new to the role um, so I think that all of those things are barriers um, and also if you get a patient who's quite difficult in terms of accepting what what's being done and you know they're not involved and etc like that things like that are probably quite overwhelming sometimes so yeah definitely they are all barriers um but you, you know that i think that they're just key to if you've got the, a good cns and you can talk to the patients properly and and really put across their point of view at the mdt then you know you're really doing well in your role so uh, in, with, a, with regards to trying to overcome those barriers, um, I mean, one of the things that I've done quite a lot of work with is to bring the nursing numbers up by writing guideline documents, minimum number of nurses for lung cancer. We have a lot of lung cancer nurses now, largely because of these national recommendations, GERP reports, et cetera, et cetera. Don't think that's happened quite so effectively in some of the other tumour sites, unfortunately, um, but it's, it's moving and, and nationally it's moving. But in terms of Getting the nurse, you just said something very important there. Feel, nurses feel a bit intimidated by surgeons, particularly surgeons. Um, uh, but I'm thinking that to feel intimidated generally if that is their, the way they're trained. And I think some, sometimes it's about trying to get the educational aspects from the more senior nurses, not to challenge unnecessarily, but just make professional points at meetings which are relevant. And that then gets respect from the nurses and then they are viewed as you know, some people that regularly contribute to the MDT. It's about how we get to that point. And I think it is something that is a bit neglected by maybe the nursing team in the sense of, of just discussing that aspect. Uh, do, do you ever discuss that aspect with maybe some of your junior nurses about how you behave at the MDT and what your role is, et cetera, or not? Oh yeah, most definitely. Um, so we've got we've got a CNS who's a band six in a training post, and that is something we you know when when um, he first started, we always used to go to MDT with him so that he was supported and then felt confident enough to kind of speak up if if he felt that something wasn't quite right or there was something you know uh, missing a little bit. So I think it, yeah, it's really important. It's really important to get that training from the senior CNSs and and to have these kind of training posts. And I think that they, as long as there is like that progression, because I think the problem is, is you get a training post in place that just expect that person to stay in a training post forever, um, which isn't the case because they're not going to be training forever. Otherwise, you'll train them and then they'll leave. So um, you know, I think it. I think a lot of the trusts are a little bit short-sighted um, in terms of getting these training posts and, to, and making a plan for progression for those people who are in a training post. I think I think um, the CNS workforce is massively undervalued, and um, you know it's it's just not being invested in enough at all. But interestingly, not by the people that we're here for, which are the patients. They always say how important nurses are. So it's something wrong there, isn't it? Anyway, I'll move on to to um, to Kerry, if that's okay. About the about your the role of of people that don't necessarily regularly attend the MDT in this whole decision making process. You've sort of covered this already a bit, but could you just expand a little bit on on how you might um, promote patient engagement and empowerment through the decision making process as, as somebody who doesn't attend the MDT meeting? Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think first and foremost, so I absolutely agree that the CNSs are 
my saviour <laughs> um, and certainly the first person that, that I go to um, with with questions and I think when you're looking at then that wider MDT there's certainly the link and um, when we're talking about things like education um, you know we we often get students to go and spend time with the CNSs because it helps them to understand the patient pathway. Um, I think in terms of um, the sort of getting our point in, into the MDT and, and helping to support um, patient views. Um, a lot of it comes down to sort of understanding of, of roles and I think, and, and there's a lot of sort of new and emerging roles within AHPs and, and not, not just physios. And, um, and I think part of that again is around the, there's this sort of expansion um, out of traditional roles and, and looking at how um, other people, you know, such as physios, dietitians, um, as well as, you know, with the radio Radiographers, therapeutic radiographers, we all kind of sit under that AHP banner um, and, and where we where we fit into the patient's pathway, but also what our skills are. Um, I think, you know, we're we're continuing to develop and look and see what the patient's needs are and seeing who the, the best person is to um, be able to, to input to the patient's care at, at that point. Um, and so I think a lot of it is kind of um, education of, of, our, of our colleagues as well and I, I know that um, since since we set up our prehab and rehab service you know we've spent a lot of time um, with the oncologists and the nurses and the surgeons and really sort of getting them to understand that what we offer as a service but also what I offer um, as a cancer specialist physio um, and we have a dietitian um, in the team as well as things like clinical psychology so it, it's really about um, sort of people understanding the roles and, and identifying um, when additional expertise um, to those um, in the core MDT are required and I think it's it's equally up to up to us as professionals um, to ensure that that, that information um, is is shared um, as required and just about recognizing um, what the skills of, of AHPs and, and and other professionals that that don't sit in the the core MDT are and I guess the other way around as well is ensuring that the wider MDT are aware of, of the latest developments really as much as possible. Yeah. It's difficult this, isn't it? But, but inviting people to meetings and making sure that the wider group is in, we, we always try to do that. Yeah. Um, and we don't always get a good engagement, I think, because of the fact that people are busy and also they, they wonder what relevance it has to them, which, and to be fair, it has a limited relevance, but it's still really, really important, I think. Absolutely. And I think it's important as well, looking at how we communicate. So we have um, electronic medical records that we can access um, and our oncologists in particular and, and the nurses, they're so good at writing down all the contacts and the clinic letters that then for somebody like myself, I can access that and I get a really good synopsis of where that patient is up to. And it's in real time as well. That's superb. Um, so it, moving on to patient satisfaction, do, how, do, how do we me measure patient satisfaction? Uh, and if there is any dissatisfaction, dis dissatisfaction, what what do we? How do we manage that? Do you want to carry on, carry on? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think both me and Michelle are smiling here. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it's. I mean, there are there's there's the wonderful things like friends and family that um, you know we're forever getting our patients to fill out and things if we we want that kind of formal survey. But I think, and again, I think this is probably what necessarily it's it's sort of one of the reasons that we we love our jobs and 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 it's it can be really challenging but I think patients are better at becoming more forthcoming in terms of their satisfaction as well as their dissatisfaction now um, and 
and it's how that I suppose is recorded is probably the bigger challenge you know when people want to the, the you know the people in senior management that want the the numbers and and the the boxes ticked but you know that there are other forms of, of sort of formal feedback but I think a lot of it tends to come verbally from patients saying thank you um you know and the the usual thank you cards and, and various things where um you know and where they're explaining exactly what what they feel has been has been done well which is really good I think we <laughs> as healthcare professionals probably focused on that dissatisfaction more than the satisfaction um, because we, we're always striving to improve um, and I don't think we take enough time to sort of step back and say actually we do a good job um, but but again it's around making sure that the the patients and their families feel that there is a platform that they can raise any concerns and that that those concerns can be raised in a in an environment where it feels supportive and it doesn't feel Feel like they're necessarily making a complaint as such um but then there is obviously um you know sort of the likes of, of pals as well where where there is a, a formal process if needed michelle can i ask you to comment on on patient reported outcome measures which are a you know, big big issue at the moment from the point of view of data management uh, i've been involved in a number of groups where where we've made quite strong recommendations that proms should be included in the data sets because they're not currently in fact, even in clinical trials, it's only recently that PROMS have started to become an almost mandatory part of the clinical trial process. You know, if you take it back 10 years, you didn't have PROMS in the clinical trials. So uh, now we always have them, of course, with all sorts of measures. But what, what, are, you, what's your, what are your thoughts about, you know, more formalised, you know, you did a holistic needs assessment that, that includes uh, some, some measurement of outcomes. What, what, what are you feeling about those? I think it would be really good to develop those more, to have them working properly. Um, we do holistic needs assessments. We've, we had a real difficult struggle getting them started here because, you know, they were expecting us to do <clears throat> them on top of our normal work. And obviously we always um, do an assessment in clinic anyway, when we're seeing a patient, we do it, see a new patient, you ask them all the questions that you would normally ask, you know, who do you live with? Blah, blah, well, you know, what do you do for work, et cetera. They're your holistic needs questions. And that's what we were doing, but we did, weren't doing them formally on the questionnaire from the, you know, on the iPad, which was um, the formal holistic needs assessments. And it was only when we got somebody um, who was a Macmillan uh, navigator working within the team that we could actually get that person to focus solely on doing the holistic needs assessment. So we would still see the patient do our assessment you know, document all what we've done, um, but then get their, their formal, the thing that counts, um, holistic needs assessment done by the, the, uh, the navigator. And then obviously they make the care plans and we go through the care plans with them to make sure that they are um, okay and they're signed off and things like that. But, you know, you need the staff. You need the staff, you need the resources. There should, we should be, um, uh, you know, we're, we're doing them mainly when we first meet people at the moment, but actually you should be doing them at several points in their pathway. Um, I think that most people are trying, but they're really struggling to get it done. And that's just because they just don't have the resources. We don't have the staff and we don't have the time. You know, sometimes it's even like resourcing like a room for the person to sit and do the holistic needs assessment in rather than in a corridor, because, you know, no one wants to talk about what they're worried about in the corridor. So, you know, we try not to do things like that. So if you don't have a room, then you're not able to do those questionnaires and things like that. So timing, you know, resourcing and, you know, staffing, big issues. And, and, and in terms of, you've sort of got almost led on to this anyway, but in terms of in terms of the engagement and empowerment that that process might 
produce? Do you think that what what do you think that has? That what sort of benefit do you, or or influence do you, does that have on patient compliance with treatment, on satisfaction, and gen, outcomes in general? I think when you have a proper discussion with patients about things that matter to them and what's affecting them, and you know what what's important to them, then then you will they will be they will feel like they're more involved in their care they'll feel like they have more more kind of say and more control and they will be more engaged and more um compliant i i feel and you know and those things that you know the the, the problems that we should be measuring more for everybody i think that is such important data to us as clinicians um, which we're losing you know we're hemorrhaging it really aren't we so we really need that data we don't have proper data people in the, in the NHS that work within teams I'm sure you don't have a data person who's collecting you know um, outcomes and things but that's you know we, we um, for a while we did have but one of the um, clinicians was paying for that out of their research fund to try and get collect the data for um, some of the treatment outcomes and things and and, and the uh you know quality of life and stuff like that but you know that funding is not infinite and it, I think that it should be part of your team as an NHS team that you should have a data person collecting all of that information and using that information towards papers research development you know it's, it's a huge gap and uh, again it's just another thing that's not really considered that important but I think actually it's one of the most important things. Yeah, brilliant. That's fantastic. So you've really nicely summarised the thing up there. I think we're we're all agreed there's the central importance of uh, MDT working and communicate and uh, communications and details of the MDT being shared with the patient at the point of contact, which is often the uh, nurse specialist, but also very relevantly the allied health professionals that may be in the wider MDT and have you know, a lot of time contact with a patient, which is really a good opportunity to discuss things with them. With the, the whole process being supportive of this concept of shared decision-making, which should produce better compliance, it should produce better outcomes for patients, and it should produce a, a better and nicer working environment for us all, I think. So um, I'd like to stop the, the podcast at that point, because we've, we've I think we've made some really nice con conclusions. And thanks very much indeed for your inputs and carry on the great work with your patients. Thank you, David. Thank you. And that concludes today's roundtable discussion. Thank you to Professor David Baldwin, Clinical Nurse Specialist Michelle Greenwood and Cancer Specialist Physiotherapist Kerry Archer for joining us today and sharing their insights on the role of patient empowerment as a key component of effective multidisciplinary cancer care with our audience. Remember to visit our archives for plenty of great podcasts covering many health-related topics. For now, stay safe and stay well, and I hope to have you back again on the EMJ podcast very soon. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now. Bye.